Good morning and welcome to uh, the Sunday School Hour at Spring Meadows Presbyterian Church. I am a substitute today. Josh Cools was uh, set up to teach on adoption and I really wanted to hear that Sunday School class so I'm disappointed that we're not going to. But I'm always th thrilled with an opportunity to teach because teaching is different than preaching. For example, I would never preach a sermon on what I'm teaching you right now because it's too complicated. Uh, and it's, it's too hard to explain. You would be explaining yourself every second. Like, what is eschatology? What does that word mean? Where does it come from? Things like that. It's a very difficult subject. But what I want to do is sort of give you an intro 101 understanding of what we mean when we use the word eschatology. It's an important term, uh, and the entire Bible itself is eschatological. Uh, even the book of Genesis is filled with eschatology. So it's a very important organizing concept to understand last things or end times or whatever uh, phrase you want to attach to it. But I think it'd be good for us to seek divine help today. So, Joe, would you open us in prayer, please? Amen. So eschatology, the home stretch. Scripture employs stunning and fantastic imagery to illumine our understanding regarding end times. I, I would think it would be very important for you to remember that neither John Calvin nor Martin Luther wrote a commentary on the book of Revelation. They had the good sense not to. <laughs> Now, that doesn't mean the book of Revelation is impossible to understand, but it is challenging to understand, and I will tell you why I think so. To interpret these images is quite trying and demanding and taxes our theological language and categories and even imaginations. Visionary symbols, word pictures, and prophetic apocalyptic literature all require skillful engagement with God's Word and also the uh, empowerment of the Holy Spirit. By the way, nobody approaches Scripture tabla rasa. Have you ever heard that term tabla rasa? Blank slate? Yes, you've heard the term tabla rasa. Why? Because we bring to the Scripture everything we are. We bring to the Scripture our worldview. We bring to the Scripture all of the experiences. We bring to the Scripture our level of sanctification. We bring to Scripture our emotional state at the time, our affective state. And so you have to be aware that the claim to objectivity in interpreting the Scripture is a difficult goal to hit. But at least acknowledge those things. Uh, acknowledge that you have presuppositions, acknowledge that you're coming from a point of view. But as, again, this subject is challenging. Uh, here's something I wrote that I like. It says the end time genre are more abstract than representational. 
that's using an artistic metaphor, more like poetry than prose, more like jazz than classical music, and more like impressionistic painting than a photograph. Yet the reward far exceeds the challenge. The book of Revelations promises in chapter 1, verse 3, a blessing to anyone who reads aloud the contents of the book. And so it is uh, a powerful challenge for us all. I want you to turn to the book of Acts, chapter 1, and I want you to see this as sort of the intro to what we're going to be talking about. Uh, Acts, chapter 1, verse 6. This is the record of the ascension, but I just want you to see it. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know. Times are seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud, probably Shekinah glory cloud, took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into the heavens, as he went, behold, two men stood beside them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go to heaven. So there is the uh, biblical prediction. There are more places than this, but the biblical category that talks about the return of Jesus Christ. So let's clarify some terms. What does the word eschatology mean? Well, it's a compound word. Um, it is literally the study of last things. And so ology is study. Eschatos is last. So it is the study of last things. There's also something called protology. Anybody know what protology is? Prototype is the what? First. Yes, my Greek scholar in the back, my wife, who actually took Greek. Uh, protos means first things, like what we see in the book of Genesis. Eschatos means last or final things. Eschatos is a Greek word. Been around for centuries. And so it has to do with last things. So eschatology is the study of last things, and at the center stands the eschatos, that is the person of Christ himself, who is the end of all things. All things will be wrapped up and consummated in him as a person. Therefore, to be in Christ is to be in the middle of all of it. I don't think there's a more important term in the Bible, in Greek, than en Christo, which is in Christ. We are in Christ, united to him. And because of that, everything that has happened to him as the firstfruits and as the firstborn from the dead will happen to us because of our union with him. We will experience everything he experienced uh, in his resurrection and new body, glorified body. Um, he is the omega, he is the telos, 
or goal of creation. Events related to his return are as follows. You will hear people talk about the epiphany, meaning appearance, or apocalypse, meaning unveiling or revelation. Parousia, meaning the return or arrival of a dignitary, and the second coming, Christ's return to consummate all things. And so in the study of eschatology, you talk about all of those issues. You see, when people hear the word eschatology, they immediately go to pre, post, ah, and uh, uh, pan. <laughs> It'll all pan out in the end. Premillennialism, postmillennialism, amillennialism, and panmillennialism are terms. But eschatology is far more than before you get to a position of articulating which one of these camps you belong to. And so some people assume if you're not in their camp, then you're some sort of wild-eyed liberal who doesn't take the Bible seriously. And sometimes it's kind of hard to talk to people like that. And the only reason I can get along with people like that is because I can be like that. And I've had to repent of that. I've had to repent of knowing everything more times than I can tell you. So the kaleidoscope of images given to us in end times related scripture defy systemization. Uh, we Presbyterians love analysis. We're very analytical in our approach to the Bible. We're very logic-oriented. We're very... Is that left-brained or right-brained? Somebody help me. Left? Yeah. But the material you're dealing with defies that. There's nobody that can come up with a position that answers every single question. Uh, an incomparable multiplicity of aspects of the prophetic word make it impossible to reconstruct these richly diverse elements into a closed system of doctrine, let alone a calculated timetable and blueprint. Hermann Ritterboss, a Pauline scholar, said in The Coming of the Kingdom, said that this colorful collage will not yield a doctrine that in a fixed order, piece by piece, indicates the composite parts of the picture. And so Richard Pratt used to tell me in seminary all the time, he says, you go to the first two chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, you go to the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation what? 21, 22? He said, they're really fuzzy. They don't kind of have, they don't have the detail we all would like. And so they're fuzzy around the edges and that's because who wrote them? God did through the instrumentality of men, but he wrote them, and we cannot fathom uh, what's, what's going on. For now, we must be content with sneak previews and trailers rather than a full-length motion picture. We can face the future with that uniquely believing combination of knowing the already of the kingdom and the not yet is surely certain. Much is shrouded in mystery and apocalyptic symbols often conceal as much as they reveal. Now, last things are related to first things. That is, eschatology is related to protology. Otherwise, the Bible would not make would not be coherent and would not make sense. Christ is the mediator of both creation and redemption. 
He is especially the mediator of the consummation of all things. Everything will be wrapped up in him. Um, Christ is identified repeatedly as both the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, or ending. He is the consummation of all things. The doctrine of first things and last things in full cosmic scope are centered in him and everything in between as well. And so through all the twists and turns of covenant history and the coming kingdom, Christ is God's first and last word. The eschaton, that is the consummation, and the eschatos, that is the consummator, are connected in his person and work. Every created thing is infused with meaning. To understand end times is to focus on Christ. I have a book in my library called The Eclipse of Christ from Eschatology. It happens more than it should. Never allow Christ to be eclipsed in your development of end-time thinking and things. Uh, the consummation points to the final restoration of our life in the world to all it was and is still meant to be. However, the garden in protology becomes what in eschatology? It becomes the city, New Jerusalem coming down from heaven. So the garden was the sanctuary of God's presence uh, in the Garden of Eden. But in the last book of the Bible, we're told that the garden has become a city, indicating what? Development. That God gave Adam and Eve what I believe to be the cultural mandate. He told them to work the, the earth, to develop all the things God had put within creation, to develop culture, as it were. And God gave them that particular mandate, and so the history of both creation and redemption is ultimately the development of the culture God planted in the reality of creation anyway. And so therefore, while we see that already in some fruition, we see not yet completely developed. Does Christianity have an impact on culture? Yes. Does it control culture and dominate culture? No. So there's already good things happening, but there's already a whole lot of things that have not yet happened, especially in our cultural uh, mandate and impact. And so, uh, in both ends of the eschatological drama, Genesis and Revelation, we see through a glass darkly, but one day we'll see face to face. Eschatology is not a divine afterthought. The king's coming has always been front page news. It is integral to all aspects of biblical revelation from the beginning to end. The history of redemption is eschatological, that is, moving toward an appointed end or goal. It is teleological, telos means end or goal, that it is directed to a goal from another promise or from the mother promise of Genesis 3.15 onward to the call of Abraham, the creation of the chosen people, to inherit the promised land through the era, era of the kings and captivity, return from exile, and finally to the preservation of a remnant, God's way with Israel held its course, and the older phase in covenant history reached its eschaton for the time being in the appearance of the Messiah, the consolation of Israel. Now, 
uh, just so we can move along in a healthy manner, the incarnation of Jesus Christ is not the end of the story, but really another new beginning in the biblical storyline. But the decisively new beginning of God's way with the world exceeds Israel's expectation. In his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, Christ has inaugurated the final phase of kingdom history. We have now entered the last days. When do the last days begin? Yes. Yes, thank you. At the resurrection and ascension. So we're living in the last days. Now, a lot of people want you to think that the last days is a category that happens after some sort of rapture or some sort of millennial period or whatever. But from the, uh, the ascension to the parousia in biblical literature is the last days. Now, one thing you need to keep in mind is that everything intensifies as time goes on in that period. And we'll talk about that maybe another time if I get to teach a whole class sometime on uh, eschatology. I would love to do that. Uh, the prophets of Israel certainly had less to go by and less to see. They lived in the shadows, not in the substance, exclusively in the not yet and with no already and no messianic reality to appeal to Israel's faith. And so the prophets basically saw a two-age construct. That is the present age and the age to come. And so when you look at the prophetic word in the Old Testament, they do not distinguish between a first coming and a second coming. Basically, they talk about the present age, and then they talk about the age to come. And for the Old Testament prophet, the great hope was the day of the Lord. We know there are two comings, not just one. They saw only one cataclysmic crisis they called the day of the Lord. It was a day of judgment and a day of restoration concentrated in one event. The day of the Lord would be the end of the age. Isaiah 65 verses 17 through 25 describe it. The idea of eschatological convergence echoed in the disciples' questions regarding the signs at the close of the age. In the eschatological view of the Old Testament, Prophets, their anticipation of fulfillment was a geopolitical, nationalistic, earthly, Jerusalem-centered kingdom. The New Testament has a clearly differentiated point of view. We await the same eschaton, but the present age and the age to come have merged into these last days. And so that is why the scribes, scribes were professional scholars who studied the Torah and the Old Testament prophetic word, the Torah and the Nabaim, which is the prophets, that's what they studied and they poured over it. But they didn't see what you and I now know to be clear and true. That is why, possibly or partially why, they rejected Christ as the Messiah. Why? 
because he's a dead Messiah. That, that doesn't sound like what their expectation was from their understanding of the Old Testament. They were expecting the end of the age to occur. They were expecting judgment upon their enemies. They were expecting a literal king upon a throne seated in Jerusalem. Now, some people today, uh, I, I say this very cautiously and carefully, some people today have imported that understanding into their present-day eschatology, which makes me wonder if they've read the New Testament carefully. Because the New Testament clearly says things that would challenge any kind of one-coming kind of view uh, so the New Testament has a different point of view. We await the same eschaton, but the present age and the age to come have merged into these last days. And so we live in the tension of the already, that is the kingdom that has already come and been inaugurated in Christ's first coming, anticipating what is not ours yet. And that already and not yet applies to everything in you. It applies to your sanctification. There's a sense in which we're already in Christ, we have his righteousness, and a sense in which glorification could be spoken of in past tense. But we've not yet realized, you see the Bible do that, but we've not yet realized it. Why? Some people have an over-realized eschatology, that is, they believe things that hadn't happened yet have already happened. And some people have an under-realized eschatology and do not see what has occurred and what has happened. But the Reformed um, theologians' greatest contribution, in my judgment, to the concept of eschatology is this overlap of the two ages and the understanding of the already and not yet. That means we live in tension. And that means what? We're never at total rest. Why? Because we're not in heaven in consummation yet. Even people who have died and left this world, who are united to Christ, still don't have a body. Their bodies, I mean, they're in heaven, at least pleading for the martyrs and justice for God, if you read the book of Revelations, crying out for a body. Why? Because the whole goal and talos of redemption is an embodied existence. We were never made. The Greeks hated the body. The Greeks thought all matter was evil and that the body was the prison house of the soul and that the body limited our ability to truly uh, spiritually experience everything. And so the great goal of death for Greeks was, or of life for <laughs> Greeks was death to be released from the present prison house. Christianity, on the other hand, sees ultimately the embodied existence. We will not be floating around in heaven in some sort of ethereal existence with harps being played by angels as we sit on clouds and eat big grapes. That's not the eschatological goal. We will live in a real, substantial world that is new. New heavens, new earth, new bodies. And that is the, the genius and greatness of Christianity. This is Sunday school and I started preaching, I'm sorry. But uh, I, I think that that's something. Now, according to the apostolic viewpoint, we live between the times. Anthony Huxma, 
In his book, The Bible and the Future, says, The New Testament believer is conscious, on the one hand, of the fact that the great eschatological event predicted in the Old Testament has already happened, while, on the other hand, he realizes another series of eschatological events is still to come. It hasn't all happened yet. It is already, in one sense, and not yet, in another. And so uh, I have a very good friend who's from Kentucky. I went to seminary with him. His name is Bruce. And I used to call up Bruce. Uh, we talked regularly. We haven't in a few years, and I wish we would. I should probably call him. Somebody needs to do it. But uh, I used to call him up, and I'd say, Bruce, how's it going? He said, not enough already, too much not yet. What do you mean? <laughs> he meant I'm suffering. Suffering characterizes the time, the in-between times. That's why our life experience, why we experience suffering. We don't suffer as a punishment for sin. Christ suffered as a punishment for sin. We suffer because we live in the tension of the two ages. We live with enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, constantly at war with us. We live because our bodies are breaking down because of aging and the power of sin, and we don't have our new bodies yet, that's what makes the eschaton, or the consummation of all things, so attractive to me. The older I get, the more I want it. Why? Because I can't see without these things. And I don't hear as well as I used to. I don't want anybody to know it, but uh, I don't hear quite as sharply as I used to. Uh, I can't run a 40 and 4 or 5 anymore. Somebody said, you never ran it that fast. Yes, I did. I was timed to 4 or 5.40. That's pretty quick for a guy like me. But I can't do all that stuff. Why? My body's aging. Why is it aging? Because this is not it. Uh, you, you need to be homesick for heaven. You need to be homesick for glory. You need to be. And that's why the limitations we face in this present life wean us away from the world. We still believe the lie, and I'm including me in it, that we can be totally happy and fulfilled here. No, we cannot. We were not made for this world. We're made for a better world, a new world. And so uh, the book of Romans characterizes the in-between times between now when we uh, live in this present world and one day we'll have a glory beyond what we could ever imagine or hope for but in the meantime in Romans chapter 8 um, verses 17 and following he talks about uh, the groaning our groaning and the spirits groaning within us and the sufferings of the present time not being worthy to compare with the glory that will be revealed but the characteristic of this age for us as believers is suffering our Lord and Master suffered and said, if we followed him, we will suffer. So if you ask me how I'm doing, the best and most honest answer I can give you is I'm waiting on the eschaton, buddy. I'm waiting on the consummation. I'm looking forward. I'm looking forward to being present with Jesus. I'm looking forward to ultimately receiving the new body and living forever. Uh, in his presence. That is the Christian hope, and there's no other hope like that. No other hope anywhere like that that comes to you by grace and grace alone. Okay. 
So what time is this over? 10.15? All right. The parameters <laughs> define the in-between times that I've been talking about. As the moment of Christ's resurrection being the already and his return the not yet. The two overpowering events together define the opening and closing acts of the eschatological drama. The Old Testament's prophets saw the consummation as a single compressed event. The apostles saw a sequence bounded by the first and second comings of Christ. The resurrection and the return are the two bookends that hold together the gospel message. The resurrection, and that is why people like me are bold enough to say that the resurrection is the center point of history. It is now because Christ is risen, because the tomb is empty, everything has been set in motion toward those end times. Because of the resurrection of Christ and the creation, we are new creatures, we're part of the new creation. The powers of the age to come have perforated space, time, and history and now are at work in us. So the very same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us and transforms us from one degree of glory to another. That's where we are. And yet... <laughs> We all sin every day, don't we? And if you don't think so, just let me be around you 10 minutes and I'll point out one for you. No, I'm teasing, but not really. Uh, <laughs> we all sin every day. Uh, even the best things we try to do are tainted with sin. And, and until you get that, I, I've always said, if you're not the worst sinner you know, the gospel's meaningless to you. Um, it, it doesn't really have the impact that one would like. And so the kingdom is inaugurated in the first coming and consummated in the second. We have the first fruits now and the final harvest later. The eschatological not yet is not the norm for Christian living. Rather, obedience to the already is normative. The approach of the return and constant reminder, all is not yet fully restored. So when I fail and when I sin, I recognize the not yet of redemption. I realize that though I could live non passe pecari, I don't. Why? Because I'm still part of this age. I'm still part. I'm still living in the overlap, still living in this body. I will never be sinless. I will never be sinless. I will never be sinless until this body is gone and I'm with Jesus. Now that doesn't mean I don't want to. I don't want to be sinful and I do want to be obedient and I do want to be pleasing for him. But what Paul wrote in Romans 7 verses 14 to 25, he said the things I don't want to do, the things I hate, I do and the things I want to do, I don't do. And I find a law present within me. A wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me? Well, partial deliverance occurs with justification by faith, condemnation. The power of sin's condemning voice over you is removed. But until glorification, that's the not yet, not yet, not yet, not yet. So all kinds of perfection views of Christian living, whether they be Wesley's or Wesleyan or otherwise, 
are foolish and not in line with Scripture. So, the cross and the resurrection is the abiding turning point in history. The center of time is no longer in the future but in the past. People ask me, when is Jesus coming back? And I say the same thing Jesus said to the apostles. I don't know, but I know this. It's one day closer than it was yesterday. And I know this. He could come at any moment. There's no reason why he couldn't. Nothing else has to happen. Nothing. He could appear at any moment. Cataclysm could occur. You see, I believe that the coming, second coming of Jesus is both restoration, but it's also judgment. It's cataclysm. The kingdom will only come in fully through cataclysm. This world will be cleansed, as it were, by fire. The elements will melt, so the scripture tells us in Peter, Second Peter. But as we, as we understand more and more about the kingdom, we live, I mean, life at the resurrection, if that's the midpoint, and I don't know how to measure how, how necessarily God measures time when he says a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. Don't you love the Bible saying that kind of stuff? Because if you want to try to figure out what day, you got a big problem there. Should I count in thousands or should I count one? Well, guess what? You'll never figure it out. And if you get a group of people to go with you somewhere on a mountain and say Jesus is coming on this day, I can absolutely tell you without qualification, he ain't coming that day. <laughs> we don't know. And we have to live with not knowing. Now, the approach of the return is a constant reminder that all is not yet fully restored. The new creation has begun, yet we await its fullness. The analogy of D-Day and V-Day in World War II is a very helpful construct in understanding our eschatological moment. D-Day was the cross, resurrection, and ascension, the decisive turning point in the victory of history. V-Day, the celebration of victory in its fullness, hovers on the horizon. He is coming soon. How soon is soon? Eschatologically speaking, it is imminent. That means it can occur at any moment. Any moment. Certainly, the Apostle Paul expected to experience the second coming in his lifetime. Uh, he missed it. Uh, he could have come at any time and most certainly will come at his predestined moment. How then shall we live in light of eschatology? As the future has already penetrated the present, we are to live semper paratus. This will be the last strange phrase I'll write on the board. Semper paratus. Any Latin scholars in here? Semper means what? What's paratus? Ready. Who said that? You knew that? Huh? Is it? Shows you how little I know. If it ain't in theology, I don't know about it. But uh, always ready, in a state of readiness. Biblically speaking, we are to be watchful. We're to be pursuing holiness in the fear of God. We're not to retreat, 
But the expectation of the future reinforces our present mandate. We are to take the gospel to every creature. Our responsibility is mission, 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 mission. That is our responsibility. We're not to go huddle in some uh, convent or monastery and inspect our navel till he comes back. No, we're to be engaged in preaching the gospel. We're to be laborers in the harvest. We are to bring the gospel to bear upon culture. Uh, We're to bring it to bear upon all creation. We're to be active peacemakers. Uh, We are to be advocates of justice and neighborly love. And we're even supposed to be earth keepers. Part of the cultural mandate given to Adam and Eve is they were to take care of the garden. So all these ecological gurus have tried to co-opt the church's great teaching that we are to develop creation with responsibility. We're we're called to do that. Uh, People like to steal our images. Some people like to steal the rainbow. Some people like to steal uh, ecology. All of that is wrapped up in, in the book of Genesis and will be consummated in the book of Revelation. So that is, in a nutshell... A brief, but I hope helpful and illuminating view of eschatology. Now here's where the fun comes in. Here's where there's more heat than there is light. On which particular camp are you in? Are you a dispensational premillennialist? Are you a historic premillennialist? Are you a postmillennialist? I had a Baptist preacher friend who would say, that he would never eat post-toasties for breakfast because he wasn't a post-millennialist. And he would never say ah when he went to the dentist because he wasn't an ah millennialist. I thought, is that as deep as it goes? But no, it goes much deeper than that. And then uh, ah millennialist, and there are both pessimistic and optimistic ah millennialist. And then the pan-millennialist doesn't have any idea. He or she just believes it's all going to pan out. Like God said. You want to know which camp I'm in? Some of you could probably guess. Optimistic or pessimistic? I'm very optimistic, yeah. Yeah. So if you want to understand what these things are. Mark Anderson taught an excellent Sunday school class a few years ago. It is in our website, on our website, and you could listen to his class on all these views to understand what they are to help you see. It was a great class. He took each one of these and he didn't argue with them. He just presented the view and what it said. So he didn't challenge it. He just tried to give a sounding to the view. Uh, And so all of these particular points of view have a different way of seeing Israel and the church. These two are more close together. They're almost identical in their view of Israel and the church, although the optimistic eye has a bigger place for Israel uh, and the conversion, mass conversion later, but uh, not always. Any questions?
we will be with Christ. We will be recognizable. Uh, if the, uh, the rich man and Lazarus, apparently they could see each other, knew each other, knew who they were. How we cannot have a body and be recognizable, I don't know. But until we receive our body, I agree with Emmanuel, we go to be with Jesus without our body. We leave that behind. And we don't get the new one until he returns. So we're living in a, quote, disembodied state, uh, waiting. You think this life's all about waiting? That has some waiting, too. But all the waiting will be over when the consummation occurs. And uh, then it'll be glory for everyone. Uh, yes, Jen. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yes, Janice. Thank you. Book of Revelation. Chapters 4 through 7, I think. Mm -hmm. I would have to look it up, and I can't do it at this. I mean, I can do it after we quit. But uh, I, I can't remember specifically what the text is. But I do know that the martyrs, it might be chapter 11, but I'm not sure. I'll look that up and let you know. But it's there. Yeah, they are longing for the vindication of the martyrs by the uh, resurrection of their bodies. They are lamenting before the throne of God, grieving because of the disembodied state. But if it applies to the martyrs, it also applies to whom? Every believer. Yeah, they don't get a special redress. Any other questions? Good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are come, uh, the Lord Jesus is coming again. And that brings great comfort and hope. It is the only hope we have of life being what you intended it to be back in the garden uh, when Adam and Eve walked with you in the cool of the day. And we long for that intimate face-to-face -face presence where we see our Jesus. And we are forever changed and we will live with him forever uh, learning constantly more and more uh, we will be very active and very engaged in this new world. And so, come Lord Jesus, and we pray in his name. Amen.